We appreciate very much the presence of each one here this evening. We welcome you to this Assembly of the Lord's House. Again, it's a privilege for me to be able to stand here and uh, speak to you concerning the Lord's will. That's what we're here and that's what we're all about. So I'm glad that you are with us. Uh, I'm going to tell you where I got the idea uh, for this particular lesson. Uh, one night I was listening to the, re- uh, to the news on the television. And the newscaster, was he, he was enlarging as they are apt to do on some things that was going on in the world at that particular time. And he said, you know what? They sure did open up a Pandora's box when they did thus and so. And I thought, you know, I use that all the time. I talk about Pandora's box in lessons sometimes, and I thought, I really don't know what that's all about. Now, let me tell you, there's danger in uh, standing up before a group of people like yourselves and talking about things you don't know anything about. Uh, That's not a good situation, so I decided I was going to find out what about Pandora's box. And I'm going to tell you this because this sets the stage for what we'd like to talk about this evening. The idea of Pandora's box is a Greek myth. And you know the Greeks were full of all sorts of stories and so on. And I find that this particular myth was written by a man by the name of Hizod, a Greek poet who lived about 700 B.C. Uh, Mr. Hizod wrote this original poem in a group of works he calls Works and Days. The story is basically, and I learned this too, a plagiarization of the Bible. You know, most of the Greek myths and the Greek stories, they did nothing more than read the Old Testament and change the names and make them to fit their stories. And that is the case when it comes to Pandora's box. Pandora's box has to do with the sins of Eve in the Garden of Eden a long time ago when Eve turned uh, sin loose on the earth. That's what Pandora does. But I want to tell you the whole story because we're going to come back to it in a few minutes. The counterpart of God in this particular myth is Zeus. Zeus is God to the Greeks and uh, here's what he does. Uh, he has um, or he created a very beautiful woman and this uh, woman was had beauty beyond um, imagination and he named her Pandora and finally we find out that Zeus decided he wanted to give Pandora a gift so he gave her a beautiful Box. Now, some people say a bottle. I like box better. So I'm going to say box. He gave her a beautiful box. And he told her, don't ever open this box. Now, you know, right off the bat, I understand Zeus is not on the same level with God Almighty because nobody when it is, uh, that's thinking about anything would give a beautiful woman a box and tell her not to open it. And that's exactly what Zeus did. You can have this beautiful box. Uh, you can have this. Don't open it. That's too much, isn't it? That's too much on most of us. It sure is too much on most ladies. Uh, They get something like that and they want to know what it's all about. Pandora, and the idea, and I looked this up a little bit, she decides that she wants to look in this box. Now, everybody agrees that this is not something malicious. Uh, This is not something that she's just trying to be mean about. Uh, She's curious. She wants to know what this box contains in spite of the fact she's not supposed to touch it. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Sure it does. That's exactly the story we find in Adam and Eve. God told Eve, you can eat anything you want of this garden, but of this particular tree thou shalt not eat. And the day you eat of this tree, you're going to surely die. 
Well, here we got Pandora. And I can imagine that she thinks about this uh, box for maybe several days. Maybe she shipped the box and thought about it, and she decides to open it. So she gets all ready to open the box, and she... And you know what? Out of that box, they swarmed every kind of evil that the world had never dreamed of up to that point in time, as far as the Greeks were concerned. Out of the opening of that box swarmed hatred, envy, jealousy, all crimes, all evil, as we say it, all sin is set free. It now swarms out into the world, which it never had before. Now, that's where we get the idea, he opened Pandora's box and let evil out. Now, here's what I'd like to use this for this evening. Today, our lesson is for us. And never before, as far as I'm concerned, we find sin and all manner of evil in this world. But the sad part of it is we find sin in the Lord's house. And it's something which we need to be concerned about. Sin is a progressive thing. Uh, people don't usually wake up in the morning and say, I've decided I'm going to be the world's worst sinner. Uh, that's not the way that it works. It starts in some small way. And the way I like to look at it, it is Psalms, the first chapter, verse 1. The psalmist said, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. Now look here. Here's the way that it, it works. He said, Blessed is the man that walks not. In other words, here's what happens. We find out. Uh, he sees this particular thing that he ought to have nothing to do with. Uh, he listens to the counsel of the ungodly. That's where I'd like to start. Uh, he listens to things uh, that he should not be paying any attention to. Now, you know what? When you begin to listen to these things, you better keep going. You don't want to slow down because then the problem comes. And I find the fact that he is listening to the counsel of the ungodly causes him uh, to decide to slow down. Now, I want to add some things right here. And I'll say the person who's listening to the counsel of the ungodly, don't open the box. Don't open the box. There's other words. Uh, the law profession, they've got a term for this. They call it, don't get on the slippery slope. Slippery slope, don't, don't. Uh, you're listening, keep moving. Don't stop and get on a slippery slope. And the Eastern people, they have another term for this I discovered. They say, don't let the camel get his nose in the tent. Now what happens? You let the camel get his nose in the tent. And the next thing, the camel's in there with you. So what do you do? Don't listen. What does he begin to say then? You listen and what happens now? We find that the person who's listening next, he is standing. He's standing. He stopped now and he's standing among the sinners. What's the final step we find? And this is inevitable. He is now sitting in the seat of the scornful. Now, folks, that's the way it happens. And that's the way sin can happen in our life. What do we have to do about it? Don't pay any attention. Keep walking. Keep moving. Do not stop. And for sure, do not sit down in the seat of the scornful. Now, I want to show you how that works. And I, I want to say right up front right here, I'm worried about us. I'm worried about you. I'm worried about me because I see things that have allowed me to understand that sin is out of the box. 
adding to something which I'm afraid we aren't paying proper attention to. Uh, we are dealing with sin in our lives on a way that I don't ever remember happened before. And I find that this is something that we don't want to forget. Let me ask you a question. Have you forgotten the basics of the Christian character? Are you familiar with words like godliness? You remember that word, do you? Do you remember morality? You know what that word means? Have we forgotten about modesty, reverence, fear of God, respect, holiness? If you wrote all those words down, could you look at those and check them off? Say, I, I remember godliness. I remember morality. I hope you do. But I find that this is something which is out of control in a lot of ways. Do you remember this idea? First, or 2 Corinthians 6, verse 17. Wherefore, come out from among them and be you separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. And I will be a father unto you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. What is, come out, he says. Come out from among them. Be separate, and I'll be your father, and you'll be my sons and daughters. You you remember all that? Sure you do. We used to talk about things like that. The come out, the be separate, the touch not. But I'm afraid, and I'm going to make this very clear tonight. I'm afraid that too many of us and too many of the Lord's people, that's all we're concerned about really right now, have not paid attention to what they should be paying attention to. As a result, there are a lot of things that are going on that would never have happened before if we hadn't stopped and listened to the ungodly. Here's the first one. Did you ever think that you would allow someone to come into your house, uh, sit right across you from your easy chair, and curse and swear right in your living room, uh, use God's name in vain, mock and ridicule and joke about God, advocate homosexuality, adultery, and fornication, glorify violence and perversion and wickedness, get indecent, immodest, naked right there in your living room. Did you ever think you'd allow that to happen? It's happened. And I'll tell you whether you like to think about it or not, it's happened in your living room. And the things we're talking about, the old preachers used to warn us about, uh, some of y'all remember probably Brother Edward Morris, one year down at the sulfur meeting, Brother Edwin Morris uh, got the pulpit. And <clears throat> now here's what I remember about Edwin. He had an index finger about that long. And he pointed it at, a, at us. And it looked like it was just going to reach all of us. He'd point out there. And here's what he said. Brother Edwin said this particular summer. Uh, he said, I want y'all to know something. He said, you know, that television set sitting in your living room is the devil's eye. It's the devil's eye. And he said, that antenna sticking out of your roof, that's the devil's horns. And you know what we did? We laughed. We laughed at that old codger. We thought that was ridiculous and funny. Uh, what we did, we'd already opened the box, don't you see? And we thought this is something which was nothing we need to be concerned about. Uh, you know, television began pretty bland. Uh, some of y'all will remember uh, a sitcom called Ozzie and Harriet. Now, Ozzie and Harriet were um, really a husband and wife. 
They really were married. They had two sons, David and Ricky. This show began on October, uh, October the 3rd, 1952, long time ago, before most of this audience was even born. Ozzy and Harriet was very tame. As a matter of fact, when Ozzy and Harriet went into their bedroom, they had separate beds. They didn't get in bed with each other. You didn't do that on television in 1952. Ozzy had her little bed and uh, uh, Harriet had hers. You didn't do things like that. At the same time, there was another program come on which has been replayed over and over and over over the years. It's I Love Lucy. I Love Lucy began in the 1950s. And Lucy, um, during the period of this program, she became, as we say, with child. She's going to have a baby. Lucy's going to have a baby. Really, she's going to have a baby. She's married uh, the man on the show that's her husband, and um, they're going to have a baby. And do you know, back then when it was I Love Lucy, they would not let them use the word pregnant. You don't say that on TV in 1950. That's a word you didn't use. That wasn't appropriate. Uh, that was something which just was not what it ought to be. I find that, that back in that time, as we said, things were pretty well under control. Is it still that way? You know it's not. Now there's cursing, fornication, adultery, nakedness, homosexuality. Everything you want to mention is something you don't want to mention, and it's going to get worse is on your television sitting in your living room across from you. Have you noticed it? I find that this is something, again, another old preacher warned about it. Uh, he was telling them about television. Some guy came around and he said, don't you know there's a lot of good stuff on television? And the old preacher said, there may be. But who wants to stick his head in a slop bucket hoping he'll catch a biscuit? Now, my girls don't like for me to use that. They said, Daddy, nobody knows what a slop bucket is today. If y'all don't know what a slop bucket is, Google it up and you'll find out why you don't want to stick your head in it. And he said, that's the way television was. You hope you're going to get something good and everything in there is bad. I know that this is something again. And I, I, I will stand on this. I do not know of any one particular thing that has contributed more to the moral decay of the American public, the moral decay of all of us, over the television. The modern world has come under the influence of television. It has taught us things we did not need to know. It has showed us things we did not need to see. It has led us down paths that we should not have taken. It has stolen the innocence of our children. What one generation tolerates, the next generation celebrates. And that's where we are. It is not going to get any better. We tried it out. What do we do? We tried it out. We listen. We sit down. And now then, it's ruling our lives in a lot of ways. I find from this, and I'm going to go from one to the next, this will be something else that most of y'all have never heard. When I was first started preaching, all the preachers talked about are, are condemned movies. Uh, movies, and I'm talking about uh, Hollywood and all that group of people. Uh, myself, I remember, I used to call Hollywood the armpit of the world because that's what it was. It was the armpit of the world back 50 years ago. It's got a lot better though, hasn't it? 
You know, nowadays it's something which is you can see anything you want to on television. And movie stars are idolized. Everybody thinks what a wonderful thing it'd be able to be a movie star. Movie stars are, uh, uh, they are reached the point that their prime interest in life is something perverted. Uh, it is something which has to do with uh, immorality or some degenerate something or another. That's movie stars. The Hollywood life star, which is so uh, glamorous. Is that the right word? Beautiful. Rich. Happy. Happy is the worst one. Is that the life of a Hollywood movie star? You know what their lives are? Adultery. Fornication. Homosexuality, nakedness, drugs, divorce, children out of wedlock, suicide. They're having such a good time. Suicide, drug overdoses. You read about a Hollywood star uh, dying, the chances are he died of an overdose. Having such a good time. And that's what everybody wishes they could be. Uh, we've opened the door on that. Phyllis Johnson who is Carl Johnson's wife, she told me uh, on this particular subject, she said she heard a preacher say one time, we can't go to the movies because you go downtown to the movies, somebody might, might see you walking in. So they moved the movies out in the cornfield, but you can't go out there because somebody might see you driving in. Uh, so what did we do? We brought them home with us. We brought them home with us and turned them on in our living rooms. And now we can soak up all the degenerate stuff that comes across in movies. I'm going to tell you something I will never do again. I've been caught in this a couple of times. Somebody in the church where I was holding a meeting say, you know, maybe after the services, we got a really good movie. It's a good, clean movie. You know, there's just nothing wrong with it. It's a good, it's a good movie to watch. And we'd like for you to watch it with us. So like a lamb to this year, I go in and sit down. Turn the movie on. It won't be 15 minutes till there'll be a, a, a language come across there that make a sailor blush. Uh, you'll see all sorts of things begin to happen. And the person that invited us will say, oh, I've never noticed that before. I've never heard that kind of language before with that movie. And you know, that's probably right. They probably hadn't. You know why? Because they become desensitized. You don't pay attention anymore. You've heard it too much. Is that good? That's bad. You don't want to get desensitized to sin. That's something that you do not want to do. And these sometimes the Christian that I'm watching with will say, whoops, I didn't know that was there. So I just don't do that anymore because I don't want to be embarrassed and I don't want them to be embarrassed. And the chances are there'll be something there that'll embarrass both of us. So I find that this again uh, is a Bad thing. Here's another one goes hand in hand with these. Computers. I talked about computers earlier in the week. You know, I appreciate a computer. They're very useful to me. I use them for all sorts of good things. It's a good source of, of uh, information and communication. But let me tell you about computers. Computers can introduce into your home the filth of the world. They don't call it the World Wide Web for nothing. There's everything in the world pumped into our homes, if you allow it, through your computer. I find as a result of this, this is a slippery slope to say the very least. Uh, this is something which can take you further than you want to go. I know of at least two Christian homes 
that had been broken up due to pornography. I know of another one that's on the verge of being broken up. Where did they get their pornography? They got it off of the computer. And I find that this is something, again, that uh, usually it's the man. And uh, they reached the point, and I used to didn't think this was something addictive. I believe it is addictive now. They reached the point where they prefer pornography to their wife and family. You see how wicked that is? That's wicked. Don't listen to it. It's no good any way you want to look at it. For sure, don't stand and be a part of it because you'll be sitting down before you know it with the scornful. This is something which is a very bad thing. And it is something which is altogether too common. While I'm here, I got one more. Cell phones. Cell phones. Uh, we talked about this, some of the men and I did, about what do we do without a cell phone? I really did pretty good myself. And some of them agreed they did too. Your cell phone can be useful. It can keep you in connection with people that you'd like to stay connected with. But you know, I find the cell phone now has been so vulgarized. Cell phones now send vulgar pictures to people. We call it social media. You know, it's not a social media. What comes across your uh, cell phone is not a social media. It does not bring people together socially. It uh, isolates them. And they can sit there and write things they wouldn't write if they were in public. They can say things and show things that they would never have been a part of unless they could do it anonymous over their cell phones. It is a source of wickedness. It is a means of perverting young people. You know, these perverts out there working through their cell phones uh, to find young people that they can take advantage of. You have to be very careful about things like that because they can get you in trouble. Uh, it is something, again, don't allow yourself to get in the situation where you open the door, let the camel get his nose in the tent. Here's another one. This is a different thing. We're going to change now a little bit. Modesty. Modesty. Um, modesty. Did you ever think you'd see a Christian woman in a pair of short shorts or a bathing suit out in public? You ever think you'd see that? Did you ever think that you'd see a woman at Walmart in the middle of the night on a cold winter day with some little shorts on? I ask what kind of... These are not shorts like we think about sometimes down here maybe. Usually they call them sport shorts. For those of you that didn't know, that's what they call them. Sport shorts. That's these little shorts with a slit upside that are so very popular. I went into Walmart um, probably four years ago now uh, in January. It is so cold you can't hardly breathe. Uh, you're blowing smoke and it's about midnight. Oh, it was important I had to make a run to Walmart. So I'm in there just to get what I came for and I look down to check out and there's one of our women down there with her husband and they're checking out and she has on a pair of these little bitty shorts. January, cold. Nobody else in the entire store was dressed that way. Why is it we try to outworldly the world? Nobody else looks like that. The next day I asked her husband, I said, what were you all doing at Walmart with your wife dressed like she was? He said, I didn't notice. I don't doubt that. He probably didn't notice because that had been normal as far as he was concerned. 
It was something that the person was not concerned about modesty whatsoever. Did you ever see a Christian man jogging down a city street with just a pair of sport shorts and a pair of tennis shoes on? Nothing else. Well, I've seen that too, I'm sorry to tell you. What does that show? We're way on down here. We listened, we stopped, and now we're in, in it. And I find that's something which is really quite amazing. Uh, is nobody ashamed? Is somebody ashamed? Uh, is somebody, um, when you think about things like this, can they blush? You know, the ability to blush is a good Christian characteristic. Uh, there ought to be something, especially uh, uh, in children, there ought to be something that causes you to blush. Blush is when your face flushes. Why does it do that? Because you're offended. Something happens that causes you to be offended, so you blush. I'll say, I'll read that again here in a few minutes, but the idea is, Jeremiah 6 verse 15, were they ashamed when they'd committed abomination? Nay, they were not at all ashamed, neither could they blush. You get to the point you can't blush, and you're way down here. There ought to be something that offends you, man or woman. And I find that's a characteristic that we're supposed to have. We've opened the box on immodesty. Uh, this is something years ago, I've been around long enough, I happened to be in on this. I was in California. And the brethren got together with several congregations in the area to discuss whether it was all right for a Christian woman to wear pants. Now, I was just there. I didn't even say a word. I listened to it. And they decided that she could if she'd wear a tunic, they called it, a top down over her pants. They decided that would be all right. Now, how long do you think the tunic lasted? And you know whether you think anything about this or not, and I'm not trying to say whether you do or not, there's where the camel got his nose in the tent. Right there. That's when it all started. Uh, something which hadn't happened to the Lord's house until up to there. We opened the box. We started down the slippery slope. And it began right there. We're way past that. I don't talk about that anymore. Uh, we're past um, discussing the idea of women wear pants. We're now talking about shorts and bathing suits and halter tops. And See how that works? That's what happens when you let the gate down. People ask me, do I still preach on modesty? I have that reputation ever since I've been preaching. And my answer is, yes, I do. I still preach on it. And I believe that the church is the most immodest I've ever seen it in all of these years. What's happening? Well, here's what's happening. I'll get more to this. Uh, it is something that uh, you cannot make people want to be modest. Uh, this is something which they have to decide for themselves. I used to talk about modesty in various ways and describe what you could or could not wear. I don't do that anymore because that doesn't have anything to do with it. And I'm glad I learned this. You know what modesty is? It's an attitude. That's what it is. It is an attitude in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may, might prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. What does he say? He says we renew our minds. When you get your mind, and I said this one night, when you get your mind renewed and fresh and new, everything else will be fine. And that's the way that it works, invariably. The Christian woman or the Christian man who is concerned 
about being modest will show that with his outward appearance. What he's concerned about will show up out here. And it works that way. It is something which is governed by our desire to be godly. Those words I talked about to begin with. Holy, righteous. It has to be driven by that. Not the idea that we're hollering at you or anything like that. First uh, Timothy 2 verse 9 and in like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broidered hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but which becometh a woman professing godliness with good works. I want to look at that a phrase at a time quickly. I'm not going to spend a lot of time with this. That woman adorn themselves. That just means they dress themselves. How they dress themselves. And I include men have to be modest too, so don't think I'm missing or leaving them out. In modest apparel. Now that's a trick question. What is modest apparel? And we'll get to that. We're going to get to that in a minute. With shamefacedness. Shamefacedness, according to Mr. Vine, means it literally the ability to blush. I see little old kids nowadays, eight, nine, ten years old, couldn't blush if their life depended on it. Because they've seen and done everything. But as I said a minute ago, this is a Christian thing that we are offended by something. With sobriety, that indicates sound judgment, soundness of mind, not with broader hair or gold or pearls or costly array. That is, our adornment is not for the outward purpose of showing our body or attracting the other sex. Uh, we, we keep this under control. But which becometh women, instead of this showy, uh, becometh women that are concerned about being modest and sober-minded. That's the difference. And professing, that means declaring godliness. That's what is modest. People with that kind of an attitude. With good works. So the conclusion is that a Christian is supposed to dress with an attitude toward modesty, toward good judgment. Uh, he or she is not to put their body on display with any clothing that is for the purpose of show. And you know, how could it be with somebody wearing a little bitty halter about this long or a little bitty shorts? What is the purpose of that? Especially in January when you know they couldn't possibly be hot. What's wrong? There's something wrong with us when we allow ourselves to get into that. Uh, modest clothing is a clothing that declares a person as concerned with reverence and respect of God. What if you were going to meet Jesus? What would you want to wear? Would you want to wear something that would be questionable about your modesty? I don't think so. Not if you had any concern about who Jesus was. I find that this is something we have to be concerned about. A woman told me uh, about this subject. She said, uh, you know, my grandma, grandma was real strict about modesty. Said, you know, my mother, mama was pretty strict. She, she held a line pretty good. But she said, my daughter is not very strict. And my grandkids are scaring me to death. How did it go? Granny was strict. The grandkids are scaring her to death. And I find that's something which we need to be concerned about. The idea of being respectful unto God. You know what we are? 
We are ambassadors of Christ. You and me. You know what an ambassador is? It is a person who represents someone else. We represent Jesus Christ. And as a result of that, you and I need to be a good example and a good representation. What you wear out in public, you need to be modest about because you are one who represents Jesus. Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived, wrote in Proverbs 11 to verse 22. Now, he wouldn't have been a bit popular today. But he wrote, as a, ring, as a ring of gold in a sow's snout, so is a fair woman with no modesty. Just like a ring of gold in a sow's snout. I didn't say that. The wisest man ever lived said that. Must be true, don't you think? Well, sure it's true. Let's go again. Though. We could spend a lot more time there. I want to talk a minute about fornication, adultery, and divorce. Here again, we find people have stopped to listen. Uh, they're standing in the, in the wrong way, and they're sitting in the seat of scornful. I want to speak just a minute or two. Uh, this is a door which is open all sorts of bad influences for us. Fornication, and I'll just use a general definition. Uh, this is generally described as an illicit sexual relationship between people who are not married. And we know all kinds of things like that. But here's what really gets me. You pay any attention to the advertisements that come on TV? You know, a Chevrolet, maybe your favorite car. You ever watch their ads? Um, before you get married um, and, you know, you're just dating each other, you can buy a small Chevy and uh, they describe one and you get by with that Chevrolet. Later on, when you get a little more serious and decide you want to live together, uh, you probably need a little bigger car, so you can ought to buy this Chevrolet. Later on, when the little kids come along, uh, you need a bigger car, and you ought to buy this one. They say nothing about them getting married. That's not what they're thinking of. You think that's not in there? Just watch next time. And the reason you haven't seen it, if you haven't, is because you become desensitized. AT&T does the same thing. You know, before you get married and you begin to uh, get with each other, uh, you need just a policy of, you know, uh, just this particular uh, policy of AT&T or whatever they call it. Uh, that's all you need. Later on, when it gets more serious, you know, you, you need more time and more AT&T. I didn't make that up. But I noticed things like that. When you begin to live together without the benefit of marriage, that's sin in the sight of God. Don't ever think it's anything else. It is sin in the sight of God for you to live together as husband and wife without being married. And I find that this is, and I'm sure everybody in this audience, you probably know this sin. Uh, it shows that the person who is involved in sin like that is not paying any attention. Listen, and there's a lot of young people here. The people that you date, the girl or the boy that you go out with, treat them with respect. That's what you're supposed to do. Uh, whether you're a boy or a girl, demand that they treat you with respect. I want to tell you this, and this will be true for you. These people that you date, you're going to know them from now on. If they're members of the Lord's church, you're going to be seeing them from now on. Now, do you want to embarrass yourself with something unseen uh, in a relationship with one of these people that you're going to have to see the rest of your life? I hope not. You need to be able to be building some friendships that you'll be friends 
50 years from now, instead of having to think about something that was done. Uh, and they tell me now that not only the boys are aggressive, boys have always had an, a reputation for being aggressive, but there's aggressive girls nowadays. And I think that's a crying shame. It's a crying shame for either one of them. But it's something that you need to be concerned about. The sin produces havoc in people's lives. It produces unwanted children that often wind up in abortion. It causes horrible diseases, mental and social problems. It steals your innocence. I was watching a talk show on TV one day and they had, I believe it was four little girls sitting out there and they had several things in common. First of all, they were all 13 years old. 13 years old. Secondly, they all had a baby. Third, they didn't have a husband. And they asked these little girls what they thought the worst thing that this brought in their life. And they all agreed it stole their youth. Stole their youth. You know, a 13-year-old child ought to be enjoying going to school. They ought to be enjoying growing up. They ought to be enjoying being 13 instead of having to take care of a baby. Stole their youth. It'll steal your youth. And that's not all it'll steal. It bothers me that this sin's in the world. It bothers me more that this sin is named among the Lord's church. There's too many hurry-up marriages and too soon babies. What am I supposed to say about that? There was a, a grandma who had a, one of her granddaughters had a baby. And it was born before she didn't have time for the time she was married for it to be a legitimate. That's not a good word, but that's what I want to use. And she's telling me about it. She said, yeah, I said, um, you know, she had a baby and it was premature. In fact, it was about two months premature and it was a struggle for her. And uh, the little feller weighed almost 10 pounds. And I thought, I'm glad he didn't go to term, he'd have killed her. And what do I say? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. That's embarrassing for Grandma. That's embarrassing for me. That's embarrassing for that mama, I hope. Because that's something which is not supposed to be. And I'm afraid sometimes when it comes to the idea of these things, we forget who's hurting, who's being hurt the worst. And that brings me to adultery. Adultery is illicit sexual relationship between people who are married. Adultery is a sin. We've glorified it now. We talk about having an affair. Having an affair. How is it we can peddle everything and make it what it doesn't sound as bad. You know what an affair is? It's one or two, usually it's two, selfish adults that are only thinking about themselves. That's all. They don't think about the people that are getting hurt, especially the children. What about the children with this little affair you're involved in? That's going to rupture your marriage. The Bible says in Hebrews 13, verse 4, marriage is honorable in all, the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. I find that adultery is a violation of your marriage vows. It is something which produces broken homes. And who suffers? These two selfish adults? Not as bad as the children. I heard this story. This is a true story the man told me. There was a little six-year-old boy in school 
and he was just out of control. The teacher couldn't corral him. He was wild in every way. One day the teacher had him by the arm and she took him down to the principal's office and just opened up the door and shoved him in. And the principal looked at the little feller and the teacher left, went on back, and he said, sit down there a minute, would you, son? Little boy sat down, because he's just stalling to let the little kid cool off. In a minute, the principal said, um, are you mad? And he said, yes, I am, I'm mad. He said, why are you mad? He said, I gotta go to court tomorrow, and I gotta tell the judge whether I wanna live with my mama or my daddy. And the principal said, that makes me mad too. That shouldn't happen to anybody, much less a little 16-year-old boy struggling just to get his feet on the ground, understand a little bit about life, and the two people that are most important in his life are ready to desert him. Pitiful situation, but the box is opened, and we find out that this is something which is a very common thing. Is divorce what God wanted? I'm talking about Christian marriages now. Don't get off on the world and what they're into. Matthew 19, verse 5. He said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. Wherefore, they're no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. What is, what is marriage supposed to be? Uh, as we stand up with our vows until death us do part. That's what it's supposed to be. And when you enter into marriage, that's the idea you're supposed to have. Now, if you've got the idea the first time we have a big fight, we'll get a divorce, you're doomed. Because you're going to have some fights. You're going to have some disagreements. Anybody that lives as close together as a husband or wife, they're going to have problems with differences. And you don't throw it away. Had a little woman told me one time, a little, little old sister, she said, you know, me and dad... We've been married 60 years, and we've never had a fight. And I thought, man, 60 years, and they never had a fight. Is that possible? Yes, it is. It is possible. That little woman wouldn't fight, don't you see? She wouldn't fight. So for 60 years, they never had a fight. But that's not normal for most people. Most people are going to have disagreements. They're going to have some fights. And you need to enter in with ideas as said, till death us do part. Brother told me, he said, you know, marriage nowadays is just sign on the dotted line. Sign on the dotted line. And he said it like this. He called it the handcuff theory. Here you are. Uh, you're the man. And here's the woman. And you're married. Uh, you're handcuffed. I hope you guys don't think your marriage is a handcuff. Uh, that's not the way you ought to be thinking about it, but that's what he said. And here's what you do. Uh, if you get tired of one of them, one of them gets tired, they just break the handcuffs and everybody's loose. Now, don't ever think that's right. That's not right. Uh, again, remember, we're talking about a Christian marriage. It's not handcuffs. It's not just sign on the dotted line. There's somebody else involved in this. And I'm going to show you who it is. Look at here. 
not only is there the idea of the man and the woman, God is involved in this. That's the way the Christian marriage is. It has God overseeing it. And God has given us specific rules. The rules tell us that we're not supposed to divorce unless one of the people is in adultery. Here's, this is my bottom line for a Christian marriage. Uh, it is unscriptural to divorce, and you have an unscriptural divorce. I'm talking about one in which nobody's committed adultery. You can never marry again. Neither one of you. You can never marry again. Now, if you don't think that'll hang you out, uh, just look around you. What happens? You have no excuse for a divorce. Uh, he didn't commit adultery. She didn't commit adultery. But you just divorced because she burned the biscuits or he wasn't what he was supposed to be. Well, you just kicked it over the hill there. Now, here's the other side. If you are the guilty party in a scriptural divorce, that is for adultery, you could never marry again. Now, if you're the innocent party... You can remarry, but there has to be the excuse of adultery. And there's a reason for that. Matthew 19, verse 9, And I say unto you, whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, shall marry again, commits adultery. And whosoever marrieth her, which is put away, to commit adultery. If you put away your wife uh, for an unscriptural reason, there's no way you can do that. If you put her away for adultery, you're free to remarry. And that's the only excuse. The only excuse. And I find again, and I'm going to tell all you young people, because we've got a house full here, and I wouldn't dare uh, you get by without knowing. Uh, when you begin to look for a husband or a wife, find you a Christian. Now, that's not a guarantee. Uh, you still are going to have to work at your marriage, but at least you're off and running. Find someone that'll help you go to heaven. Look at it like this. What do we want to do in this life? We want to go to heaven. If you, do you want the devil's daughter sitting across a breakfast table for me? That's no way to get to heaven, and you're going to have trouble. Find someone that'll help you make it to heaven. And that's a very important thing. Like I said, that's not a guarantee. But I find that's something which will get you off to a good start. And here's what that'll do for you. You know, deep down, uh, we got to work at this. When things come along, we're going to get it fixed because we're Christians. And it can work. And it can work for you. And there's nothing better than a happy marriage for your happiness in the long haul. A man of a certain church, he told me, he said, the last 20 years, we've had 11 divorces in this congregation. He said, out of that 11, eight of them were married to non-Christians. The Bible teaches this idea. In 2 Corinthians 6, he says, be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Don't be unequally yoked together. There's no more unequal yoke than a Christian married to a non-Christian. So there it is again. And like I say, I've been teaching this for years. It may run off of you like water off a duck's back. But what I've just told you is the truth. Now I'm, I'm through. And I tell young preacher wannabes, when you get down to the bottom and there's nothing else, quit. Well, that's the way I am. But it's just a little bit left. But it's real good. 
I don't know how many here might know this. I preached this one time, and a young lady come around, and she said, I knew that. I said, how did you know that? She said, I had a class in Greek mythology. She knew it. Do you know the rest of this story? You may have missed the best part. The rest of this story is Pandora is going to open the box again. Yes, she is. She's going to open this box again. Now, like I said, she let all this sin out to start with. And now then, there's something still in there. And you know what she does? This is part of the story. You know what flew out? Hope. Now that, that's the only redeeming quality of this story. What flew out of that box? Hope. And if I had to look to see what that represented, I'd say that's Jesus. Hope. We talked about hope. Hope flew out of the box. In spite of all these things that's happened, there's still hope. In spite of all the bad men and the wicked things and the sin and the evil, there's hope. And that hope is something which is still available unto us. I know there's hope for us. I, I had a little personal experience with this about two years ago. I, I was down at the sulfur meeting. Three years ago it was, I guess. And uh, I went down there for the evening or the afternoon service when the young preachers preached. And I sat down there, wasn't a, there's a, just a handful of us there. And they had some of these young guys preaching. And I was so glad I went. One young man got up, and I'm going to tell you folks something. There's nothing like a young preacher They've got a zeal and enthusiasm and a conviction that us old guys have worn out. This young preacher got up and he's just brimming full of good stuff. And you know what he preached? Bless his heart. He preached about Daniel. Daniel. And he forbid us uh, to bow down. Don't bow down. And you know, I'm convinced already there's going to be three of them. Here the first one's got to me. I'm not bowing down. This young man's inspired me. I'm going to stand up. And lo and behold, the next guy got up and he preached about the children in the fiery furnace. And you know what he said? Stand up. Everybody stand up. I thought he was talking to me. I was ready to jump up and say, yippee, here's two young guys that have got the right idea. Stand up, he said. And then there's one more. And he had the best one. If there can be one better. This young man got up with a great deal of enthusiasm and he told about Nehemiah rebuilding the wall. You remember that story? Nehemiah, a person of God, rebuilt the walls of Jericho. And the way Nehemiah did it, he inspired his soldiers and his builders, build, build this wall. Here's the way you do it. You have a sword in one hand and a brick in the other one. And he bared down on that. And he said they rallied and built the wall in record time. Now I'm standing there and I'm ready to stand up. I'm not going to bow down. And I've got a brick in one hand and a sword in the other. And there's hope for us. 
And I believe that is the case. We have hope, but you know what? You have to remember, don't listen to the scornful. Uh, don't stand, get caught standing, and for sure, don't sit down. I'm ready to close.